Tavis Smiley, and uh, delighted to have you with us in this second hour of today's program. Uh, should be a good conversation. I've been looking forward to this uh, conversation uh, with two guests, Emily Galvin uh, Manza uh, and Ivy Harris, about what's wrong with America's system of public defenders, and more importantly, how to fix it. Public defenders not only fight for their poor, indigent, and mostly people of color clientele, but also have to fight against persistent negative stereotypes about their clients. No surprise there. We'll talk in this hour about a new model of collaborative public defense designed to empower public defenders nationwide. In this hour, I am pleased to say that Ivy Harris joins us live in studio. Ivy, how are you today? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me here. It's my great delight to have you here. Privilege is all mine. Thank you. And uh, Emily uh, Gavin Amanza joins us on the phone. Emily, good to have you uh, join us as well. How are you today? Thank you. I'm just wishing I was in studio. I'm feeling really left out. <laughs> uh, you're left out, left out of uh, the in-person dialogue, but thank God for technology so we, uh, we can uh, engage this dialogue for the next hour. Uh, and I'm just uh, honored to have you both, uh, both uh, present. Emily, let me start with you. Um, I, I gave a sense of it, um, just kind of thumbnail sense of um, thumbnail sketch, if you will, of uh, what's wrong with the system. Um, you're talking to an audience um, made up primarily uh, of people of color, not exclusively. We're heard across the country, of course. So a lot of people of color tuned in. And we all, I think, have some understanding, at least a cursory understanding of what we think the public defender system is about. Uh, we know it's about uh, more often than not poor people, uh, more often than not people of color. Um, every one of us has a story of somewhere uh, in our family. Somebody was forced to have a public defender, uh, and many of us end up being sadly disappointed that the deal we thought they should have gotten, they didn't get. The justice was not served. So every one of us, that's a long way of saying every one of us, I think, has a critique of our public defender system. But let me start this dialogue by asking you to give us your critique of our public defender system, Emily, and we'll jump from there. Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this, and also with, with an audience that that has so much knowledge already of this system. Um, I think I want to start by saying what people don't realize often about public defense is it's not some little corner of the legal system. Mm -hmm. Public defenders actually represent 80% of all accused people in America, which tells you, by the way, who our criminal legal system is directed at mm -hmm. if 80% of accused people are so poor that they get a public defender. Um, obviously, our system is built to direct itself towards low-income people and people of color. It's also built in a way that has been for a long time very, very tilted against the accused, against public defenders, and also tilted in a way that is not limited to what's happening inside the courtroom. I think most of your listeners probably know that an arrest is never, oh, just an arrest, right? An arrest can blow up every aspect of a person's life, even if they are wrongfully accused. They can lose their job. Even 24 hours spent in jail, you can lose your job lose access to health care, to vitally important medications. Without a job, it's very easy for a person to lose their housing, um, especially if their housing was unstable to begin with. A simple arrest, even a wrongful arrest, can ruin every aspect of a person's stability. Now, obviously, this is very important to that person, but it's also important to the rest of us because safety depends on stability. When people, are, when people have housing, income, access to mental health, medical, substance use care, they don't tend to be engaged in harm in the community. So what we're really trying to do is build in the resources that enable public defenders to do more, more of that stabilizing work, which Ivy does and she can tell you about, more caregiving for people who are in crisis, more worrying about people's real stated needs, 
and more ability to free up the lawyer to focus on the lawyer stuff, mm -hmm. to basically take all of the client care work off the lawyer's plate and say, lawyer, you go focus on what's happening in the courtroom and you go win this case. You go give us your best trial advocacy. Ivy is going to come in and take care of all of the other things that are terribly important to the client. Because let's be real, that's how rich people get defended. Mm -hmm. When a rich person or a person of privilege is accused of a crime, you better believe their legal team cares about their housing and cares about their job. So we're trying to build that, but for low-income people. Mm. Um, I appreciate that. Uh, Emily Gavin Amanza is the co-founder of Partners for Justice, and Ivy Harris is a PFJ, as we call it, Partners for Justice, PFJ advocate. And we'll, we'll bring Ivy into this conversation as we move uh, forward, uh, trust and believe. Uh, when we come forward, though, I've got a few other questions for Emily that I want to um, uh, give her a chance to sort of unpack. Uh, I'm not naive in asking this question uh, that I'll pose when we come forward, but it, 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 it bears, I think, um, um, some wrestling with, and that is why our system is tilted in the way that it is. It's not like we haven't known this for quite some time, and yet the tilt has never tilted <laughs> in the other direction. Again, I'm not naive about this, but I want to just explore this notion of why our so-called system of justice, uh, our system of jurisprudence is so tilted in the way that it is. And a great deal more to unpack as we move forward with Emily and Ivy. Uh, you're listening to Tavis Smiling. What's your quarrel with the world? You're listening to Tavis Smiling. Let's get back to more of this rich dialogue with Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley and Emily Gavin Almanza and Ivy Harris, uh, who will both work with Partners for Justice. Um, Emily is the uh, co-founder of Partners for Justice, and Ivy Harris, who we'll talk to a little bit later in this hour, um, is a PFJ advocate. So in case you've just tuned in, we're talking about the public defender system in our country. And I think most of us who are people of color have some experience with that uh, that uh, that that frame that too many of us find ourselves in. Uh, typically, when you're poor, when you're indigent, when you're a person of color and you find yourself caught up in the criminal justice system, you know, with the public defender, you heard Emily say moments ago that 80 percent, 80 percent of people in this country end up having to use a public defender at some point, which gives you a, a great sense of how our system is designed. The question, Emily, that I want to ask and give you a chance to unpack a bit more on is why? And again, no naivete here, but why is our system so tilted in that way? Policing is a choice. Who gets accused? It's a choice. Mm -hmm. These are all policy choices. It's not by accident. I think too often the lay viewer will look at our system and think, oh, crime is really high in that neighborhood. When in fact, when we see crime numbers reported, what we're seeing is where police have chosen to spend their time. Um, and I mentioned choice at the outset because everything in our system is a choice. It's not an accident. The system is not broken. It is functioning exactly as it was intended. Mm. Now, not to go too deep down the rabbit hole of history, but this is a system that has been shaped by and evolved from our legacy of slavery. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. And this is one of my one of my most, I don't know, compelling examples to really show you how the American system of criminal law, and I'm not going to call it justice, I will call it law, mm -hmm. uh, differs from international norms. Internationally, escape was never considered a crime. Because generally, people thought escape is something natural. It's like breathing. If a human being is confined, they will try to escape. Mm -hmm. So internationally, norms were that escape was considered a natural action. Now, people could be charged for helping somebody escape, but not for escaping themselves. What's different about America? Well, in America, we are a country shaped by slavery. And in that framework, of course, nothing is more offensive than the idea of escape. 
And so because we were and continue in many ways to be, because, of course, prison labor is slavery, and we can talk about that, too. We are a slave nation. Mm-hmm. We have a system of laws that harshly criminalize escape. And I mean harshly. A person who can be completely innocent of what they were accused of. Let's say a person is wrongly accused. They are terrified, and they escape that wrongful accusation. Even if they were innocent of the underlying charge, escape itself is a crime in America. And there's a million examples like that of how the system has grown out of the desire to use the criminal legal system as a means to re-enslave primarily black men. Um, I think a lot of people want to talk about that as history. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure, there were black codes in the South, you know, but, but, but now it's just a legal system. No, no, no. When you look at who's in that legal system and also who is shut out at all levels, I mean, juries remain far, far whiter than is representative of the community who is standing accused in this system. People are not getting a jury of their peers. Um, the law itself as a profession is vastly too white. Last time I checked, the law was still over 80% white as a profession, which means the people standing up as prosecutors and as judges, and yes, as defenders, are not representing the body of people who are accused. So. I could go on about this for a long time. Yes. <laughs> I will restrain myself. No, no, but no, no. It's not an accident. No, I, I, you're, 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 you're killing it, uh, as we say. Uh, and this is getting good. And a few things again. The more you talk, the more I want to interrogate. And I promise we'll bring Ivy in at the appropriate time here because I want to hear more about what she does on the ground. She's, uh, she's doing the righteous work every day. So I want to hear her testimony, as it were. But there, there, are at least three things, Emily. You said I want to uh, again. I want to interrogate right quick. Number one, uh, we were talking on this program, I think, yesterday about um, about cancel culture. Uh, and it, it's so easy these days to be canceled. And I think you just said something for which you could be canceled, uh, Emily, and that is calling America a slave nation. I can hear a whole lot of fellow citizens right now. How dare she? Who is this white woman calling America a slave nation? Um, uh, for those who don't want to to accept that moniker, you say what? I say that as long as people who are incarcerated are working for no pay, And as long as the 13th Amendment carves out incarceration as an exception to our national ban on slavery, we cannot say that we are a country free of slavery. Mm. And I think that we have to confront the truth about ourselves as a nation. And I think it's really counterproductive to hide from painful truths like that. I think that the, the battle to fully end slavery in America is ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, you can probably tell that I am heavily in favor of ending slavery in America, mm-hmm. but I think pretending that slavery is history is counterproductive. I think we have to be honest about where this nation stands. And yet there, there are persons, no doubt, listening right now who have found themselves saying the following. Uh, many fellow citizens say this routinely. Uh, certainly lawyers say this and, and judges say this. I mean, how many times have you heard the refrain that we have the best criminal justice system in the world? It's not perfect. It doesn't always work the way it's supposed to, but our framers and our founders did an excellent job and that we have the best criminal justice system in the world. You don't even call it criminal justice. You call it criminal law. So for those listening who have who have used that refrain, uttered that refrain time and time again, you say what to them, Emily? Well, I've spent a lot of time in this system um, from all different sides. I'm a person who's been accused. I'm a person who has needed a lawyer. I'm a young person whose entire life benefited from a judge taking a chance on her. Um, I've also been a lawyer. I've been a public defender. I've represented over 2,000 people. 
in the course of my life. And I can tell you that when you spend time with this system, you realize that you are having a very hard time finding justice in it. I also think that, you know, there's a lot of things. I, I'm a, I consider myself to be a very patriotic person mm-hmm. because I think that critique is patriotic. Mm-hmm. I think that loving your country in a way where you are willing to work day and night to make it better and fairer, I think that's a form of great, great love of country. Um, I think that if we dove our heads in the sand and pretend that we have the greatest system of justice in the world, we would have to be ignoring the fact that we are one of the world's largest jailers, Mm -hmm. that about five or six million people are churning through American jails nine or ten million times a year, separated from their families, undermined in their lives, that this system of incarceration is costing American civilians over $300 billion a year just in lost wages because of incarceration. There are a million burdens. A year of incarceration shaves two years off a person's lifespan and adds 10 to 15 years to their physiognomy. We are doing this to millions of Americans. And it's, as you pointed out, it's not evenly distributed. So as long as our system is harming people of color in these myriad ways, we cannot say we have the greatest system in the world. Mm. I didn't get to be uh, relatively good at what I do uh, by letting certain comments run right past me. And you you said you offered one a moment ago, and you probably know where I'm going. I'm going to pick this thing up uh, because it, it jumped out at me. It is not often that I hear white women, young white women, say that I am here because a judge took a chance on me. Uh, I hope that you're comfortable sharing what that story is. I don't know it, uh, but I, I know the audience, and I would love to hear the backstory. I think, I think it's instructive. I'm sure it will be instructive and informative. But again, I've heard that story many times from persons of color, but not often have I heard white women say, I am here because a judge took a chance on me. So you're going to have to unpack that for me, Emily. I will I will give you enough detail to tell you the story, but not enough that I'll embarrass my mama. Okay. Okay. <laughs> we don't we, we don't we don't like embarrassing. I got a mama too. She's listening. I don't like embarrassing my mama, so I ain't gonna be mad at you for that. All right. Good. So um, when I was a young person, um, I got into a lot of trouble. I went through a really really hard time, um, and during that time, I engaged in a lot of problematic behavior, uh, including you know substance use, and you know criminal behavior Uh in the community. Um, And it culminated with me getting arrested when I was 15. Um, And I got really lucky because on the day that I was arrested and I was brought into court, I had a judge, Judge Leslie Harris Uh in Boston, Suffolk Suffolk Criminal Court, Juvenile Court, I guess, um, a really legendary black judge who was an advocate for young people. And I don't remember much about that day because one thing I've always carried as a public defender is how if when you're the person who's standing accused in court, it goes by really fast and you don't understand anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember so little of that day. But he called me up to the bench and he said, why are you here? I, I was a good student. I was a bad kid, but a good student. And he, he said, you know, what are you doing here? And I don't know what I, I probably said something really stupid. And he said, look, I'm going to I'm going to give you a chance. I'm going to give you a chance to go on and do something better, go to college, do what you, you know, live your life. But I don't ever want to see you again unless you've done something good with your life. Mm. And because of him, I was able to go to college and I was able to become a, you know, a lawyer, go to law school, become a public defender. And what that meant for me was that 
when I first started walking, my first job as a public defender, my 1L summer, I got a job with the L.A. County Public Defender mm-hmm. in East Lake Juvenile Courthouse, which at that time was, I think, the busiest courthouse in America for kids. And it meant that I was walking into rooms with kids who had done things that I myself had done or were accused of doing things that I myself had done, and they didn't do it, and I did, mm-hmm. except for that I was a white girl who had the, all the benefit of privilege in this legal system and also a very great judge. And they were black in East L.A. or Latino in East L.A. And because of that difference, the system was coming down on them like a ton of bricks and trying to steal their future and trying to steal their potential. The system looked at me and saw potential. And the system looked at them and saw threat. And that made me really, really angry as a young future public defender. I've been angry ever since. Um, but that dichotomy of how white people get treated in the system and how people of privilege get treated in the system versus the way the system really operates towards the majority of people it targets, that's been very, very raw for me for a long time. Mm. Yesterday, that's, that's first of all, thank you for sharing that. Um, that's a lot of personal stuff to put out there, and I don't think you embarrassed your mama, so that's a good thing. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm sitting here, and uh, that, 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 the story is making me a bit emotional, in part because yesterday on this program, as I've discussed, I'm sure, many times in over the course of my career, um, we were talking about this narrative that exists in this country always of white folks saving all the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were talking specifically, as I recall, about the new Martin Scorsese film, uh, Fly, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, mm-hmm. um, that came out this weekend, and everybody's calling it a masterpiece. Uh, Scorsese, one of the best, no question about it. I've not as yet seen the film. Uh, but even those who call it a masterpiece and his best work ever are still a bit concerned that he situated white men in their story at the epicenter mm-hmm. of this drama that he tells, even as beautifully as he tells it. And so it raised this conversation, once again, that we, we find ourselves in perennially, uh, whether it's The Blind Side or a thousand other movies I could you know, run, run down, white folk are always saving us. Here you come now with your young white self telling me <laughs> there was, a, in fact, a black judge who saved you, mm-hmm. who gave you an opportunity. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to ask very simply and very quickly, how do you read that? What, is it, what does it mean that it was a black judge who gave this white girl a chance? Well, you notice why I always mention that part of the story. And, and I said a few minutes ago how problematic it is that the law is still over 80% white. Mm-hmm. Um, it means that people with the lived experience of being targeted by our legal system mm-hmm. are not included in controlling, shaping, influencing that legal system, acting as stakeholders. Ivy wrote a brilliant article, actually, on, on uh, Supreme Court Justice Brown Jackson and, and what her appointment me- meant to her. So I, I feel like Ivy has a lot of really smart things to say about this. But I would just say I, I always mention that because who we put in power matters. As a, as a lawyer... I need to know who my audience is in the judge. What do they already understand about the world? What experience has shaped their perspective as a jurist? Um, and I think that it's unconscionable that we have built a system that pertains to people of color and simultaneously excludes people of color. Um, I think it's the, the, the culmination of the idea. You, you've heard the, the slogan, you know, no conversations about us without us. Sure. Um, and I think our legal system is in many ways the pinnacle of that. Um, not in all places. You know, there are jurisdictions that have done a great job of creating opportunities for future lawyers. And, and that's something we really hope with Partners for Justice, I have to say, is we have so much talent in our cohort. 
and so many talented advocates who carry lived experience that is highly relevant to the system and to ideas of justice in America. And that's one of the reasons we work so hard to promote their future career yeah. arcs and desires is to bring more of those voices into positions of power and into the conversation. So now that you understand, uh, there's a reason why I always believe in following the guest. I tell all of my colleagues here at this station and whenever I'm lecturing young people who want to be in, the, in this business, I tell them the more generously you listen, the more charitably you listen, the better host you will be. You have to listen generously. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you think you're leading the conversation, you're doing it the wrong way. You're always following. You're always following the guest if you're doing it the right way. Uh, and so you hear people say things and you, you, you probe, you interrogate. I'm so glad I asked um, uh, Emily that question about what happened to her as a, as, a, as a teenager because it informs this conversation in ways I could not have imagined. So that when we come forward, I'm going to ask Emily one other question, which is to explain really what Partners for Justice is, what they do, and how we can change the system of public defenders as we know it, if it can be scaled up across the country. And then we'll go straight to, to Ivy Harris, who sat patiently. I want to hear the story of the piece that she wrote uh, that Emily mentioned a moment ago about KBJ and what that means to her. And then we'll talk more specifically about the work that Ivy Harris does as a PFJ Partners for Justice Advocate. We'll do all that when we come forward. You are listening, and I'm glad about it, to Tavis Smiley. Interrogating and unpacking. That's what we do around here. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Sounds, Sounds different. different, huh? This is Tavis Smiley. Smiley. This is Tavis Smiley in dialogue with Emily Gavin Omanza and Ivy Harris. We're about to hear from in just a moment here. Uh, once Emily uh, tells us more about what Partners for Justice is actually all about as the co-founder of PO, PFJ. So Emily, tell me about PFJ, and then I want to hear Ivy's story. Thank you. So we're trying to create something that we call collaborative defense. Mm -hmm. I mentioned at the top of the show that an arrest is never just an arrest, but public defender clients are dealing with so many things that can derail the course of their life or their future or their goals. So what we do is we help public defenders bring on the capability to work on more than just the criminal case. Specifically, they can bring on the ability to work on housing, employment, continuing education, access to mental health treatment or substance use treatment, uh, access to public benefits. Uh, we have had some real creative skill sets. You know, we've, we've had advocates um, help find care for people's dogs when mm. the person was tied up in the legal system. So the general idea is to be client-led, to not assume we know what our clients need, but to ask our clients, to ask them what they are struggling with, what they prioritize, what their goals are, and then put in place an interdisciplinary professional like Ivy who can work on all of those different things and importantly, then channel all of that work that the client has done back into court in, with something that we call mitigation, which mm -hmm. is basically telling the story of how the client came to be where they are, their context, their goals, and all the work they've done to help set up every piece they need to be successful moving forward. It's incredible work. It gets a lot more people out than, you know, um, lawyer work alone. Uh, I'll give you an example. We looked at the last year of our cases um, in Delaware, where we had advocates like Ivy working on these cases. Mm -hmm. And we found that when those advocates did mitigation and, and helped their clients tell the story of, of how they came to be here, 87% of the time, those cases ended with no jail and no prison. Mm. And 71% of the time, those clients found a path to full dismissal of the charges. So that sets us up to do what I call mass decarceration. Mm. In the last five years of work, we estimate that we've eliminated approaching 5,000 years of incarceration. 
And we're really lucky to have jurisdictions like like L.A. County, that when you come to them and say, hey, do you want to do mass decarceration? you want to help more people come home and do really, really well? L.A. County said, absolutely, yes, let's do it. Let's do more of that and, and brought on folks like Ivy. Mm. All right, Ivy, that's, that's, a, that's a heck of an introduction uh, <laughs> to, to what you do every day. So right. tell me what you what, what's a day like in your life as a PFJ advocate? Right. So I would characterize it into three categories. Mm-hmm. So I typically begin my day in court. Mm-hmm. or trying to assist my clients with getting to court. And that's a huge deal because sometimes, uh, a lot of the times my clients don't have a reliable way to get to court. They might be taking the bus. They might be taking the train. They may have a ride. However, something as simple as uh, losing childcare. I can't find anyone to watch my kids. Um, or a friend just bailing out last minute and you being late for your for your court date mm-hmm. could mean that you have a warrant out for your arrest. So being able to communicate with somebody who also speaks to their public defender and is able to explain like, hey, I might be a little bit late, that can mean the difference between being in custody or mm-hmm. out of custody. We also have a partnership with Uber now, which helps us get our clients from where they're staying to court so they could be there on time and, you know, and, you know, be in court. Mm -hmm. So outside of that, when I'm in the courtroom, I'm also able to, again, uh, Emily had mentioned it, we do mitigation by telling our clients stories. Mm -hmm. So I work very closely with clients. I get to hear their background. I get to hear and understand the barriers to, um, some of their their court requirements and i'm able to go in and i speak with their public defender i could speak with the judge in the courtroom or the judge in their chambers and i'm able to articulate some of our clients life stories why they interacted with the criminal Mm -hmm. legal system why they might not have you know met their court requirements um those type of things that make a difference to what the judge just like determines Mm -hmm. the outcome for our clients will be um after that our work can be deeply personal. Sometimes there isn't much for me to do when I'm at court mm-hmm. besides sit with clients who got sentences that will affect the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting with young men and women who now ha- have felonies and are in tears, crying. I'm sitting with people's family members after they found out that their son is going to be incarcerated now. They showed up to court, didn't know what was going to happen, and ended up incarcerated. And my help just looks like being there, Mm. just listening in those cases. So that's one part of my day. That's the morning. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then there's the in-office work. So the in-office work looks like me communicating with my clients via phone. It could be in the office. It could be if they're incarcerated via video conference. But that's when I begin to do my intake work. And that looks like working with my clients on their court requirements. That might be um, anger anger management, domestic violence. It might be getting into a mental health or substance abuse program. We focus first on, okay, what do we have to do to satisfy the court's requirements? Mm -hmm. And then I let my clients lead and talk about some of their most interpersonal goals. What would you like to accomplish? But also, what are some of the hardships that you're facing? A lot of my clients either come to me and they're experiencing some type of housing insecurity. 
um, a mental health issue or a substance abuse issue. Mm -hmm. These are things that we can address just for them to be healthy human beings and able to interact with society in a, in a way that is helpful. So that is a particular part of my day. Um, the other aspect is working with community resources in order to connect my clients, fighting through a lot of red tape and bureaucracy, mm -hmm. sitting on hold for a long period <laughs> of time, um, and ensuring and taking some of the weight off of our clients who are simply ultimately trying to survive by being able to go out, connect them to resources, ensure that they get there. And then they get the proof that they need and things like that. We also, of course, connect to housing and things like that because if you don't have housing, there's very there's very little that you can do. Mm -hmm. So that's essential. And then the third component of my work is being in the field. So I go with my clients to doctor's appointments mm. because there I'm able to articulate sometimes to a doctor what my client is going through based off of an assessment that they received from a different therapist in a, in a different way than my client might be able to. Um, I'm able to articulate like the needs of the court to those individuals. Um, sometimes it's just going with them to social services. It might be going to a community service program mm -hmm. to ensure that they are adequately enrolled. All of these things to provide support to individuals and help in the ways that we can. And again, I'll preface it by sometimes us as advocates, we don't have the answers to what our clients need, mm -hmm. but being able to be available and just listen to people, sure. to just listen to people and their hardships and what they've been through. And to say that, like, I can't provide the answer and the resources that you need might not exist right now, but I'm gonna do everything that I can in my power mm -hmm. to help you to fight alongside you to find it. Everybody wants to be heard. There's no question about that. We yes. all want to be heard. Uh, and when, <clears throat> and when uh, and people don't listen, then that suffering gets rendered invisible. Somebody has to listen. Somebody's got to pay attention to the, the suffering doesn't get rendered invisible. Uh, when we come forward, I want I want to ask you right quick, um, uh, Ivy, uh, what you hope. Um, and Emily sort of teed this up earlier, but I want to hear it from you directly. What you hope all this work that you are doing as a PFJ Partner for Justice advocate is then allowing the public defender to focus on. So if you're handling all of this, what are you hoping that they can focus on? And now we start to see the impact of this program on the work that public defenders do. We'll get to that when we come forward uh, with Ivy Harris on Tavis Smiley. For all the freedom-loving folk, this is Tavis Smiley. I feel like freedom. Ready to re-examine your assumptions and expand your inventory of ideas? More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. More of Ivy Harris coming your way right now. We're talking about Partners for Justice and a more collaborative way um, to, uh, to imagine our public defense system uh, in this country. Uh, we're joined by Ivy Harris, who's a Partner for Justice advocate, and Emily Galvin Amanza, who is the co-founder of Partners for Justice, uh, who is uh, just brilliant in her, in her, uh, in her discourse, as is, as is Ivy. So let me ask you two things right quick watching my timer, Ivy. One... All the stuff you just described that you do that you do every day, uh, and I'm, I'm laughing because while you're in studio, your phone is buzzing and clients are reaching out to you for this, that, and the other. So I can see <laughs> that you do this 24-7. Uh, that said, right quick here, what do you hope that all that you are tracking allows public defenders to focus on and to do? 
So I hope that the work that I'm doing and the other advocates are doing will help public defenders focus on the law. That is what they're trained to do. Mm -hmm. Before we existed, public defenders were handling the law. They were handling finding programs for clients. They were also trying to assist in any human a human way possible to to people who are suffering uh, from poverty just trying to find them housing trying to do these basic needs mm -hmm. things while also trying to handle the legal aspects of their case so us as advocates we're able to take that responsibility and that sense of duty towards their clients off their shoulders and we're able to assist public defender clients with meeting their court case goals while also focusing on meeting their basic needs in order not just to help them but mm. to help the community heal right mm. we're not just helping individuals but if you help individuals and they're able to become productive healthy members of society you're helping community yeah. emily i've never never spoke to spoken or met any public defender who would not tell you that they had a case backlog every every single one of them is backlog. Mm -hmm. So I, I assume, um, given the numbers you laid out earlier, which are which were uh, just stunning and astonishing, the impact that this program has already had on on, on getting folk out of harm's way. Um, I, I assume this allows these defenders across the country to focus more on their caseload. Exactly. That's really our hope, and it's also a matter of not just focusing on it, but focusing on it under good circumstances. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. When I come into a room as a public defender, I'm asking my client who's never met me before, I'm a stranger, mm -hmm. and they've been hurt by a lot of strangers in the system, yeah. I'm asking them to trust me. And what builds trust? When they say, hey, I know you want to talk about this suppression hearing we have coming up, but what, what, what matters to me is when do I get to see my daughter again? I want to be back with my baby. When I can say, absolutely, that matters to you, let's work on that. I'm going to walk you down the hall to my colleague who's going to connect you with resources on family defense or who's going to connect you with resources on how to navigate this custody process, that builds trust. If I, as a defender, have to say, I'm so sorry, I know that's the world to you, but I can't help you with that, that breaks trust. Mm -hmm. So Ivy's presence and the presence of advocates in the office who let that defense attorney say, absolutely, we've got you because we are a team, it changes the whole dynamic. I mean, the answer to all of this is resourcing in public defense, right? That counties have to follow like what L.A. County has done and say, yes, we're, we're going to dedicate more resources to defenders so they can build that trust. They can solve underlying problems. They can build more public safety and more public health through caregiving work. Um, but this is, you know, what we've done so far is proof of that value, proof that that works. Yeah. A few more things I want to cover when we come forward, and I have not forgotten um, uh, the uh, the comment that uh, Emily made earlier about this provocative piece, a uh, powerful piece that uh, that Ivy Harris wrote about what it meant to her that KBJ was elevated as the first sister on the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll talk about that and a couple other things before we wrap this conversation. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. From the Mert Park with love, love this love. is Tavis Smiley. Who do you trust to get at the truth? Tavis Smiley. Smiley. That's who. The conversation continues right now. For another four minutes, it does at least. Um, I want to go to Ivy right quick and ask this question, then I want to wrap um, talking to Emily once again. So uh, Emily mentioned this piece that you wrote. Um, so many of us, I remember, you know, I always remember uh, when uh, 
um, uh, KBJ um, finally navigated the, those treacherous waters of those hearings and right. made her way on the U.S. Supreme Court as the first black woman to, to, to sit there. Um, you wrote a piece. Just top line for me what it meant for you as a young black woman to, to see KBJ on the Supreme Court. I mean, as a young black woman, it, it meant everything to finally feel represented in the highest court and in our country. But ultimately... I also had an understanding that her one getting to that place and also being at those hearings, she would undergo um, a lot of scrutiny that I don't think existed for the previous mm -hmm. individuals who um, who had to go through those hearings. Ultimately, she has to navigate the politics of not only having once been a public defender and all the stereotypes surrounding public defenders defending criminals. Mm -hmm. Also, she had to navigate this perception that ultimately she might be more biased towards um, these woke Antifa, <laughs> you know, like lawless activist yeah. types, ultimately, AKA they're trying to say black people. Um, but also, there is this, there's also this problem where she also has to watch the way that she is articulating herself, her mm -hmm. facial expressions, sure. because there are stereotypes of black women as being too aggressive, mm -hmm. right? So she's constantly having to watch her emotions. Yeah. And that's something that I resonated with because I was in a commission ship in my hometown and I was on camera in front of the public and I felt that, you know, you can't be too passionate or oh, you're yeah. going to be considered angry. No, they're watching and me. you can't speak too, you know, outwardly about issues that affect black and brown people because you're going to make other people feel, yeah. other people feel that they're not being represented in a country where they're already yeah. the majority. But you're having to balance being able to speak truth to power on situations, but also you, if you want to be effective, you can't. Yeah. No, but that's it. a tightrope that black women navigate not only in the criminal legal system as attorneys and judges, mm -hmm. but in all aspects of our work. So it, is, it, it is, meant a lot to speak about that. It is a tightrope, and I'm, uh, I'm glad you expressed yourself in that regard. I, I got a minute to go here. Um, maybe I'll give the last minute to you. Um, I want to connect this very quickly. You, you earlier in this conversation, referred to this country as a slave nation, and I gave you a chance to unpack that. You also said, though, that we, we don't get judged by a jury of our peers. I want to connect those two things. As long as we're in a slave nation, uh, can you imagine us ever uh, being judged literally, specifically, uh, by a jury of our peers? Mm, it's a great question, and there's a lot of wonderful conversation around this. I, I would point your listeners to some of the writing of, of Brendan Woods, who's the chief defender of Alameda County, California, mm -hmm. who's written very, very eloquently about the need, the reforms needed mm -hmm. to make our juries something closer to just. In the end, though, I feel like our system is so wrong-headed because all of the things that create safety for mm -hmm. the community are not the things the system does. They're the things the system dismantles. Mm -hmm. And so our work, you know, my work and Ivy's work, it's all about asking not what is the right punishment for what happened here, but rather... What can we do to make sure bad things don't happen again? Those are really different questions. And yep. yes, you know, the, the equity in juries is a vital reform, but also questioning the very nature of how we find truth yep. and how we create accountability. 
The program is called Partners for Justice. Emily Gavin Almanza is the co-founder of it. Uh, Ivy Harris is a PFJ advocate. I've enjoyed in having both of them on this program. Congrats on the work that you're doing and continue to scale this up across the country. Emily, good to have you both on. Emily and Ivy, have a great rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you both. More Tavis Smiley when we come forward.